as you're making your way through the prophets, uh, it's quite easy to get lost. So tonight, we're going to begin a short three-week look at Isaiah, which we will use as a sort of paradigm for understanding the prophets. The idea is that if we can get our heads around Isaiah, then in theory, we can get our heads around all of the prophets. You guys ready? Oh, yeah. That's the spirit. There you are. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, now, before we begin the heavy lifting, let me loose a question into the room. When I use language like the prophet to describe Isaiah, what image does your mind conjure up? You know, some folks imagine the prophet as something of a, a social activist, you know. And the prophet was a lot like a social activist. Uh, in a moment, we'll read from Isaiah 1 in which the prophet reminds Israel over and over again, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Folks like Martin Luther King Jr. effectively altered the landscape of American society via active and nonviolent concern for the oppressed. And this becomes the prophetic quadrilateral in the scriptures. The orphan, the widow, the poor, and the refugee. Or to put it another way, uh, one of my professors likes to say, the so-called worthless person, those on the margins of society. And the prophet is a force for the recognition of and the concern for those whom society overlooks. He is a voice for them because God is a voice for them. Some folks suspect the prophet is more uh, like someone with an important cultural critique, someone who points the finger at what's going on in society and says, this is all wrong. When you read the Old Testament, the prophet may have come across as a bit of a subversive artist, you know. Uh, he does creative protest against the status quo. He's very punk rock in that way. Um, in 1996, Pacific Northwestern author Chuck Palahniuk wrote the novel Fight Club, in which... Uh, via the genre of literary satire, he rails wildly against the 21st century notion of consumerism and materialism that enslaves humanity. He writes in it, we don't have a great war in our generation or a great depression, but we do. We have a great war of the spirit. We have a great revolution against the culture. The great depression is our lives. We have a spiritual depression. And the prophet is the same way. His medium is often poetry. He's an artist. He's a performer, sometimes a really gross performer. His work penetrates the surface and bores deep down into the soul, not just the intellect alone. So with this powerful and public critique, he draws attention to the great evils of the world. So the prophet is a social activist. He's a critic of the culture, but he's more than that as well. Many, and I venture a guess that maybe most people, when they hear the word prophet, they think of a fortune teller, someone who sees the future. As if, <laughs> I love when I know that it changed behind me without looking, as if all the prophet was up to was predicting events that are yet to transpire. You know, he's got a window into the future and he's going to come back and tell us about it. And I venture a guess that for many here in the room, when you hear the word prophet or prophecy, your mind goes to whether you want it to or not, fortune telling or predicting the future especially those of us who grew up in or are familiar with a sort of end times church paradigm like I was as a kid. After all, the world, you know, is about to erupt in a ball of sparks at any given moment. So prophecy and the prophets helped us predict when exactly that might happen. Usually wrong, but still working on it. So while it's true that the prophet does predict the future, for sure, frankly, it's pretty rare. Um, and depending on how you interpret the Old Testament prophets, less than 10% has to do with the future. The vast majority of prophecy deals with what's going on in the present. So the prophet is an activist. He's a social critic. 
uh, with something to say about the future for sure. But once again, the prophet is more than that. The prophet was fundamentally an intermediary, meaning that his job was to stand between Israel and God, or in the broad sense of things, between the world and God. He's a man of two worlds, so to speak. And unlike Dr. King or Chuck Palahniuk or Marty McFly, when the prophet spoke, he spoke for God. And in the scriptures, the prophet's able to boldly proclaim things like, Yahweh says, and then present the words in the first person. So Isaiah begins with, the Lord has spoken, and then immediately after that, hear me. The prophet speaks for God. And though it goes without saying, you know, you remind yourself that this is a world with no internet, no social media, not even a system for mail yet, electronic or analog. So communication was then done primarily by the means of an envoy. So when the king sent an envoy, that envoy would speak in the first person as a representation of the king himself. Um, in the same way, the prophet is God's envoy. He's the messenger for the king who speaks on the king's behalf to the kingdom. And interestingly, the prophet was also something of a weirdo. Um, not unlike other, you know, note noteworthy activists and cultural critics, the prophet was often a, a kind of a loose cannon. He was an outsider, um, friend and enemy to the encircling world. The prophet was a voice for rebellion against the status quo, which never goes over well with the moral majority. To the poor and oppressed, he was an advocate. Um, and to the powerful and comfortable, he was an unsettling nuisance. In his seminal book on the prophets, Abraham Joshua Heschel writes, the prophet was an individual who said no to his society, condemning its habits and assumptions, its complacency, waywardness, and syncretism. His fundamental objective was to reconcile man and God. And the erratic nature of the prophet feels palpable in the text. When you're reading along, the prophet's often hard to understand. Famous church figure Martin Luther testified to the uh, unusual nature of the prophetic narratives. He said, the prophets have a strange way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. It's like, uh, ask Abby, that's like talking to me. Someone has, the prophets have ADD. So you've probably noticed this. If you've spent any time in the prophetic literature of the scriptures, then uh, I'm sure you may have noticed this. Why do they keep saying the same things over and over again? Why are they so scatterbrained? Why doesn't it seem to follow any kind of linear logic? And the problem is that these prophetic books aren't really books at all in the traditional sense. Um, the prophetic books are anthologies. They consist of a series of originally independent oracles which were brought together to form a larger, larger collections. Usually on the basis of shared content or other considerations, these oracles have been placed back to back with little to no narrative introduction. So the sense of repetition results from the methodology of bundling these writings together via respective themes. So there's the theme here. Oh, here's a theme here. These seem to go together. We'll put these oracles in this place and these in this place. It kind of becomes more like a playlist than an album, if that helps you. So imagine the difference between like an album with a narrative or um, you know, at least a strong thematic foundation to it. Your uh, Ziggy Stardusts of the world or, or Pink Floyd's The Wall or I don't know if this is the wrong audience for these examples. <laughs> Someone give me like a relevant you know, background. The new album from Tearing Up the Club, you know? If it's all about the club, that's like a thematic thing that's going on. Um, compare that to like a playlist that you've curated in order to soundtrack a certain mood or a certain occasion, you know, like a, a night drive or a, um, a wedding, a summer party, whatever it is people make playlists for. Me, I like to, I like to wake up, you know, easy and smooth-like in the morning. 
So I have this very specific playlist for my morning routine. It's called Morning. Go figure. And um, it, it's made up of folks like uh, the Commodores, you know, and Steve Winwood and Peter Cetera. And my wife is not into this. She's like, get us out of these decades and into these decades. And, but something about pouring a cup of coffee with Lionel Richie singing at you feels so nice. <laughs> you know? You know what I'm saying, Eric? In the morning, just the other day, this actually happened. I was pouring a cup of coffee and I was singing along, you know, say you, say me. And I was like, man, that is the way it should be. That's what he said. <laughs> That's what he says in the song. So Isaiah is more like a playlist than a record is what I'm getting at, which is why our, you know, our understandable method to go at the text and read it like a concept album, just a, a linear narrative, often produces frustrating results. It's easy to get lost. The topics move abruptly from one prophecy to the next, and they are to a certain extent grouped together, but without benefit of any formal setup, it doesn't say, now on to this topic or anything like that. One ends, another begins, and it's just like that. It's easy to get lost. Unlike, say, Matthew or Genesis, where you have a, a plot line and a, a literary methodology, those books are more like concept albums. Isaiah is like a playlist or like a greatest hits compilation. So with that rubric established, um, let's go at Isaiah chapter 1, unpack it line by line, and see what the heck it has to say to us tonight. Are you guys ready? Tracking with me so far? That's the spirit. I like the big nod, you know? It, it goes out more than the nods around you. It's like, that guy's he's really, he's really ready. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So stop here for one second. <laughs> I won't do this to you the whole time. But because the, op the opening statement's an important one, this, here we're learning that everything that follows is fixed within a much larger story. So let's recap the story thus far. Let's recap the Bible thus far. You guys are going to get sick of the meta-narrative thing eventually, but trust me, there's a huge payoff in thinking about it all the time. Really quick, movement one, you guys remember, creation. Long time ago, God made the world. He established humanity to rule and reign over it, and they were to utilize the planet's raw materials and the potential therein to partner with God and transform the garden into a garden-like city with culture and art and, you know, rule and reign, subdue the earth, take rule over it. Movement two, doesn't go well, the fall. You know the story. Humanity rebels against God the king. They choose instead their own kingdom apart from God's reign, and the story quickly descends into chaos. So in the third movement, Israel, God selects this gentleman called Abraham to begin establishing a people with whom he will not only bless the world, but eventually rescue it from its awful decline. Problem Israel is herself in need of rescuing. The story is marked by failure again and again and again. We just did like six weeks on it. And by the time we get to Isaiah, the kingdom is like in near ruin. It's divided into two parts, ten tribes up in the north and an additional two tribes in the south. The northern kingdom is like outright apostate. They've basically renounced God. And the southern kingdom, called Judah, is only marginally better off than the northern kingdom. They experience a crescendo of moral decline and will soon be sent out of their own land and into something called exile. Now, Isaiah and all the prophets prior to this happening, to the exile, are acting as God's last-ditch effort to put the brakes on the express train to destruction. So God is warning Israel over and over and over again, you've got to make a change or you'll go into exile. Now that's the setting in which Isaiah opens. So let's read on with that in mind. Verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So the picture being painted here, forgive me for using uh, modern imagery, but to borrow from a, a modern paradigm, it's almost like a courtroom. So imagine Isaiah, he summons heaven and earth as witnesses, and Israel is put on trial for her crimes. God is the judge in the scenario, and we, the readers, are acting something like a jury, and the prosecution begins. And fascinatingly, the prosecution opens with God's, not with God's anger, but with God's sorrow. God is like a father that has been rejected by his own children. And for this reason, God's not only hurt, he's filled with sadness. And now the pages to come are not without their fair share of anger and frustration. But from the very opening, Isaiah is impressing upon the reader, even God's frustration and anger flow from the heart of a loving father. His children is who God is concerned for. So let's read on in verse 5. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. This metaphor of uh, Israel's chronic illness as sin, sin as illness, will continue through the entire book of Isaiah. Her evil is basically like an open wound, and consequently Israel is in need of a doctor. Read on in verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners. Right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. So at the time of Isaiah's writing, um, an army of Assyrians had just swept through Judah, conquering every city except for Jerusalem. So though Jerusalem remained, she remained alone, and Judah as a whole was left in ruin. So imagine this. When an invading army besieged a foreign land upon entering it, they would simply help themselves to the crops of the area in order to feed what was often massive, massive armies. And whatever was left uneaten would just get burned up. So for a society of farmers like Israel, this is tantamount to economic meltdown. Everything is ruined. The whole thing is over with. Now, Prior to the harvest season, when you're waiting for all the crops to grow up, small huts would get fashioned on the edges of the fields, so farmers could sort of act as sentries over the fields and make sure no one stole, apparently, cucumbers, because what they're watching. So you're sitting there in this little hut, making sure no one steals the cucumbers all day. And after the, hut, after the harvest, the hut's no longer meaningful. It was just there for that season, and there's no more crop to watch over, so the hut's useless. And Isaiah is saying that's what Jerusalem itself is like now. It's like a hut that was fashioned in front of an empty field because the whole land of Judah is in ruin. Judah is an endangered species on the brink of extinction. So read on in verse 10. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah, which is a low blow, by the way. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams, fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked, you, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. 
your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Now, God is saying quite clearly that Judah is at odds with God. Um, She is like Sodom, he says, a city that was destroyed for the sake of its evil. That's how serious the situation has become with God's chosen people. But look at the scene he goes on to describe. Though apostate or totally separated from God, Judah is still in the temple. Uh, She's still worshiping on the Sabbath. She's still observing the festival. She still presents an offering in order to kind of wring some blessing from God like a tit-for-tat transaction. And the, the incense that God here says that he is detestable to him, it's, it's signifying that the kind of incense that would be burned in the temple to mask the odor of all these dead animals. So the idea is that so many sacrifices are being done that they have to burn this incense and God can't stand it. The occasions for festivals, so the new moon festivals and things like that, um, they, those were days for worship. They were appointed by God, appointed feasts, and God is now sickened by them. For some reason, the very things God appointed and commanded now offend him because Israel is so far gone in her sin. So what in the world made God so upset? Keep reading. Verse 15. The rest of verse 15, by the way. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. There it is. God's angry at injustice. In fact, when verse 17 reads, learn to do right, that Hebrew word for right there is sadak. It's something used all over the pages of the Old Testament. It has a lot more to do than just simply doing right things and more to do with right relationships um, stemming from God's deep concern for those at the bottom rungs of the social ladder. So for perspective... Imagine the way that even our modern, ostensibly progressive society remains in many ways structured for racism or structured for sexism and inequality for women, for example. Now multiply that by at least a thousand. If you were a widow in the ancient Near East, you had little to no refuge at all, no resources, with no way to earn a wage because you were kept out of that world. Widows were mostly prey for the oppressors. And God says to advocate on their behalf. He's like, what the heck are you doing? Look out for these people. Plead their case. Remember, Israel is called to be like God, but without uh, uh, be about the things that God is about. Care for those rejected and cast aside by society. Then read on in verse 18. God shifts gears. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, they are red as crimson. They shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, as you may recall, we're talking about the ancient Near East here. So 
uh, there's, there's no bleach. And the imagery here of the, the scarlet stain has to do with like wine on clothes or wine on wool. So in the ancient world, you spend wine on an old garment. It's, it's been stylized now for good. That's kind of the end of it. You just added a graphic to your shirt. And that's, that's the imagery here being used to describe Israel's sin. The stain is like this wine stain that can go nowhere at this point. And God wants to do the impossible and remove the awful stain of Israel's sin. And yes, he's obviously quite angry about injustice, um, very much so. And now we're seeing another dimension of God's heart. Israel has become the oppressor in this paradigm, and God wants to redeem the oppressor. And as we discussed at length a few weeks ago, we see the same if-then pattern that echoes throughout the New Testament, or the Old Testament and the New Testament, frankly. Over and over again throughout the story of Israel, the outcomes are not fixed. God is uh, participatory. He works responsively with Israel's genuine freedom to make real choices. He's not lying when he says, if you, then I. There are real possibilities at stake here. And here God is calling Israel to repent or to turn around, to change direction. So read on in verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I want my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteous, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oath in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. So wow, that, that escalated quickly. In verse 23, we read that all your leaders are corrupt. And in the following verse, we learn judgment is already on its way. Something is about massive is about to happen. And then the tone seems to shift. It's like judgment is coming. This is what's going to happen. I'm so mad. And then he starts to talk about hope for the future and how Israel is going to be redeemed, how beautiful it's going to be. Hope comes on the heels of judgment. God isn't interested in destroying Israel, after all. He's interested in destroying her evil. God wants to take her through this fire of refinement and make Israel into something beautiful, more beautiful than it ever has been before. And then the passage concludes with a warning for idolatrous folks, those who worship other gods or who make sacred oaths to them. That line, the gardens you have chosen, is a reference to this pagan ritual of having sex with a prostitute within this garden-like enclosure to be blessed by the gods with fertility. These are, this is Israel now. This is, they follow Yahweh, but they also do this sort of thing. And God says all this evil is going to get burned up in a refining fire. And that's Isaiah 1. Now, before we end the evening by talking about what all this means for you and I, let me be honest about something um, that occurs to me personally when I read through the prophets, something I suspect occurs to at least one or two of you guys as well. 
Um, maybe it's my own sensitivities. But one of the understandable reasons some folks feel a tad unnerved when reading the prophets is that God seems to be depicted as being quite angry. Uh, dare I say mean. Um, heck, uh, I mean, if you're like a, a millennial type, stereotypical, I'm about to do some sarcasm here. I suppose this could be downright horrifying, you know. After all, the air that, that we breathe is the gospel of perfect little you, you know. You are a beautiful and unique little snowflake. Everything you do is wonderful. If anyone ever voices anything other than excessive adoration, they're unloving to you, you know. They're critical and mean and negative and intolerant. So, yeah. <laughs> You, uh, you arrive at this text wondering, well, what the heck is God so angry about, you know? Why isn't God being more positive? Why doesn't he just post some photos of like a waterfall and, you know, and put a verse on it and t tell stories, man, you know, and just travel, see the world, you know? Be, a, be positive, God. Um, I'm obviously being a, a tad facetious, but we know that there's a tinge of this reasoning haunting many of our minds, even if you're not that type. I mean, I admitted just moments ago that sometimes God strikes me as particularly mean when reading the prophets. That's why it's so important to understand that the prophet is revealing to us uh, the heart of God. Something one scholar I read this week calls the divine pathos. This is the inner emotional world of God himself. The prophet with God broadcasts an extreme sensitivity to evil. What's sometimes minor to us is major for him. And we often lack perspective to see one for the other. A friend of mine describes the situation like, you know, a bully who has convinced an innocent child to ride his bike into oncoming traffic and the loving parent who is furious about it. Um, Abraham Joshua Heschel says it like this. Geez, that's big. I'm going to have to step back. Um, to us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor, is slight. To the prophets, a disaster. To us, injustice is injurious of the welfare of the people. To the prophets, it is a death blow to existence. To us, an episode. To them, a catastrophe, a threat to the world. Their breathless impatience with injustice may strike us as hysterical. The prophet's words are outbursts of violent emotions. His rebuke is harsh and relentless. But if such deep sensitivity to evil is to be called hysterical... What name should be given to the abysmal indifference to evil to which the prophet bewails? This is the raw emotion of God set before a megaphone. You know, most of us don't suffer from such a dilemma. We're more often than not, not all of us, but some of us, myself absolutely included, more often than not, we tend to be nonchalant toward um, certain types of evil, indifferent toward God's emotional disposition. We're numbed or we're bored or in our unfeeling lethargy, we slouch and we kind of slip further and further from God's emotional disposition. And this is why the words of the prophet, which are totally jarring often, they, they are a necessary wake-up call to shake us from apathy and compromise, to, to wake us the heck up. What is it exactly that upsets the prophet so much? Essentially, there are three major themes all well represented in Isaiah 1 and throughout the book. Far from irrelevant today, each of the big three have staggering implications for you and me. The first major theme is the breaking of the covenant. Israel, as we have discussed at great length, even only seven weeks in, um, is in a covenant relationship with God. She's locked into a marriage-like relationship with Yahweh, and Israel is unfaithful. 
So Isaiah uses two big metaphors to describe Israel's relationship with Yahweh. The first is marriage. And within this metaphor, Yahweh acts as the faithful, good, and loving husband. And Israel is the unfaithful bride flagrantly cheating on her first love. Hence the raw, violent emotion in the text. If you've ever experienced infidelity firsthand or in the lives of your family or your friends, you know some of the most profound wounding in the world is carried out with the weapons of adultery. The second metaphor Isaiah employs is that of a family. Yahweh is like a husband. He's also like a father, a good, loving, faithful father. And Israel is like his children. And like any loving parent, God is upset by his children's disobedience. So the prophet is acting as something Tim Mackey calls a covenant watchdog. He watches over the covenant. He's concerned about it. They stand on with fiery outrage pointing back to the covenant Israel has forgotten and disregarded. The second major thing that upsets God and the prophet uh, across the pages of Isaiah is injustice. What's revealed across the story is that when Israel breaks covenant with God, it's the poor who suffer the most. Nothing makes God angry quite like the mistreatment of the poor. Read the Old Testament. He gets upset about it quite a bit. Consider for a moment where you and I sit. probably all of us, if not the vast majority of us, where we all sit as Americans um, in an affluent society living in a globalized world, the clothes that many of us wear, the coffee that we drink, the food that we eat, many, if not most of them, are deeply connected to injustice around the world, to the oppression and mistreatment of the poor. Of course, we don't call it that. We call it fast fashion, or we call it, you know, just a cup of coffee, or we call it a candy bar. And we happily ignore and overlook the women and children that are trafficked into slavery, forced to work in horrific conditions, abused and underpaid if they're paid at all to farm cocoa beans or to sew sneakers together, whatever it might be. I know there's absolutely so much that we can do about it, we kind of shrug and say, oh well, or I don't know, or where to begin. And in the face of what often feels like, and I totally get it, what feels like overwhelming evil, we have to start making some sort of change, even if the changes are small, even if there's something like buying less or not buying other things altogether or just learning something or educating ourselves, rejecting ignorance and complacency and saying, well, it's too much to know. I'll never understand it all, so who cares? I'm just going to buy whatever. Withdrawing from systems of oppression and violence and stepping into systems of justice And redemption is how we access the justice of God. And these are actually accessible things. Not everyone's going to fly to, you know, the developing world and be a missionary for the rest of our lives. These are things that any of us can do. Involvement with foster care, for example, is a wonderful example of partnering with the heart of God for justice. Sponsoring a child overseas takes next to nothing. Social justice in our city for the homeless, for the refugees, which there are a ton in Vancouver alone. There are small, tangible ways to connect with God's heart for those on the margins of society and to shake off the numbness that so easily entangles. The third great theme in Isaiah is idolatry. Or the, oh my goodness, the drummer did this? Wow, he's never going to hear the end of that. Someone called Sergei, okay, someone that you're related to is calling. Where is he? Is he up there? Oh, he's, wow, he's really going to get it. Make sure you point that out to him when he gets back. I didn't even turn it down either. I want it to happen a second time. Um, The third great theme in in Isaiah is idolatry, which is the worship of other gods, or to employ Isaiah's metaphor, um, sleeping with other lovers. This is why Isaiah 1 is a key text for our purposes, because in it we see that the temptation for God's people 
has remained consistently the desire for God and. You know, it's not just God or, it's often God and. What I mean is that many of us would be totally happy to follow the way of Jesus, follow God. Sure, just some other stuff as well, you know. The temptation in the ancient world is the temptation in the modern world. Yes, I'd love to follow Jesus. I'd also love to have sex with my girlfriend. And sure, following Jesus sounds great. I'd also love to enjoy the occasional weekend of getting drunk or tipsy with my friends. Of course, I'll follow Jesus, but I'm keeping my money and my stuff for myself. Or, or, okay, I'll follow Jesus, but I'd also very much like to celebrate an imaginary version of myself on the internet that my fabricated life may impress strangers who couldn't care less. You know, Many of, us are, many of us are happy to follow Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. Just, you know, Jesus and some other stuff as well. It's these three things that grieve God so deeply across the pages of Isaiah. Breaking the covenant, injustice, and idolatry. As a result, the prophet is perpetually oscillating back and forth between judgment and hope. Ordinarily, he begins with judgment, presumably one of those, you know, bad news first type of guys. And get this, before Israel goes into exile, when they're still in this kind of warning phase, last-ditch effort, the prophets are 80% judgment. So they're a bummer to read. And they're about 20% hope. You do the math. I think it checks out. Uh, but the prophets, after the exile, after Israel's already been sent away, um, what we call the post-exilic prophets, the, the paradigm's reversed. It's 80% hope and 20% judgment. In Isaiah, the first 39 chapters were drafted prior to Israel's exile. And as such, 80% of them, give or take, are all about judgment. And then, in chapter 40, Israel has been sent into exile. It's already happened, and the opening line reads, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. To Jerusalem. And I think the idea is that we often need to hear both and sometimes freighted on one side or another, depending, you know. The concept is certainly unappealing to our modern ears, this idea of judgment, but we often need to hear about God's judgment, a, a right and true idea of God's judgment, to be sure. Particularly in our, in our age of self-help, you know, for many, God has been reduced to this rosy-cheeked life coach position just out of your way and yet accessible enough to accommodate your every whim because it's all about Project You, you know. But judgment acts as this wrecking ball to our self-obsession and our apathy. And I think we all, we all realize that there are certain allowances that we as a culture make to accommodate things that God may not care for in particular. It's as if this sort of collective apathy will sway God's opinion on the matter. Um, this is an easy example. It may sound kind of petty, but it's the best thing that I could think of. Think of the way, for example, that so many of us think about uh, piracy or you know, illegal downloading, if you like. Um, the thinking being something like, well, every piece of media in the known universe is owed to me. So if I can't stream a song or watch a movie or read an ebook or television or whatever it might be, I'll just steal it, you know. I'll steal it, I won't pay for it, and I will do it without pause. And I'm sure some of you think that I'm terribly archaic at this point. You know, recently a friend of mine was asking me if I, we had talked about this record that was coming out, and he's like, oh, did you listen to it yet? And I was like, no, it's, you know, it's not on this service or that service, and I doubt that I'll buy the record, so I haven't heard it. And he was like, just download it, you know, um, steal it. And of course, he, he probably wondered where I've been. He just didn't know that. Did you know the internet works this way? You can get access to the thing. Um, but the idea is kind of like this, this, as if the weight of share, and this friend was just an incredible human being, way more like Jesus than I am. I guess on this one thing, though, I got him, you know. So um, it's, 
it's often like the, the weight of like this shared thing that we're doing can somehow shift something from wrong to not so wrong anymore. If we all just do it, who cares? If we all get drunk occasionally, who cares? If we all wear the same shoes made by slaves, then who cares? And the length to which we compromise over time numbs us to the reality of what we're doing. And the voice of the prophet, though it is, you know, thousands of years removed from us, it still cuts through that apathy and jolts us upright. You know, the passion with which he pleads that we wake up out of our indifference and remember who we are and who God is to take this thing seriously. Yes, we often need to hear the sometimes horrifying words of judgment, but judgment isn't the end. We also need to hear of God's hope. You know, many of us are in a place where we've been beaten down and drained by God, by life, and God's hope has the power to cut through our despair in the same way that his judgment lays waste to our apathy. Even God's judgment itself is depicted in the text as a refining fire, the goal of which is renewal rather than destruction, or as one prophet puts it so well, mercy triumphs over judgment. At the end of Israel's rope, even with judgment encroaching, and even after judgment has taken place, there's still hope, comfort, comfort, speak gently to Jerusalem. You know, uh, it's interesting, though the prophets are given as much real estate in this library of writings that we call the scriptures as the entire New Testament, we often dismiss them to the sidelines. But I think that if we wade into their often troubling waters, we find that we do need to hear about God's judgment, or we do need to hear of God's hope. More often than not, I suspect we need to hear both. And the concept of prophecy is not something relegated to ancient Israel. We need to hear the sound of prophecy in the church and in our culture now as well. It's true that we don't have prophets in the Isaiah sense anymore, what, what I'll call prophets with a capital P, meaning prophecy is no longer infallible, you know, to the degree that we speak and we declare definitively, God says, and then someone writes it down and it becomes the Bible. That doesn't happen anymore. Those folks are gone. They were for a different time. In fact, when folks talk like that, now we have a word for it. Suspect, you know, or insane, I don't know. But we do have prophets or prophets with a lowercase p, men and women who are prophetic. And they play a role in the church not unlike the role of the ancient prophet. And they do so within the church, within God's kingdom. These men and women are the type that have an ear turned to, toward the voice of God's spirit. And they have this uh, amazing ability to not only hear from God well, but to then pass on what they've heard with resonance and with power. Um, and they come in all sorts of ordinary packages. You probably hear someone prophetic all the time, and maybe you just don't call it that. My good friend Matt uh, is a very outspoken uh, personality. He's bursting with energy, um, and he's deeply prophetic. My wife, Abby, who's one of the most soft-spoken people that I have ever known, is also deeply prophetic. And they speak of God's heart for, of, of judgment sometimes, for sure. But more often than, that, than not, they speak of God's hope. You know, I think of Paul's words in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. And while it's true that, you know, our culture, our world, our paradigm is so drastically unlike the ancient Near East, one wonderful way that that works in our favor is that unlike God's family thousands of years ago, now all of God's people, every follower of Jesus, has the Holy Spirit situated deep within them. And the Spirit speaks. Every follower of Jesus 
can prophesy. And it isn't just the case that we can, it's also written that we should. We can all prophesy and we should all prophesy. And some of you even have a knack for this, dare I say a gift for want of a better word. You're hardwired by God to play this role in the kingdom. And interestingly, some of you know this already and you're operating out of that uh, knack that you have and others of you have no idea. Some of you already operate out of this ability well and others of you have this raw ability and it's yet to be refined by practice and by maturity and growth. In either scenario, this is something that you need to cultivate, frankly, to refine, to grow in. Maybe you're just the type that thinks like, oh, sometimes I pray, I feel like I hear from God, I tell people and they weep, you know, that kind of thing. That's probably because you have a prophetic knack for the thing. Come talk to us after this, you know. Um, Come, come to pre-gathering prayer, for example. Every Sunday at 4 o'clock, we hang around up there praying, and it's all about listening to God's voice and what he wants to do tonight at the gathering. Um, come to that prayer training that Bridgetown is hoping, hosting in a couple of weeks that Katie talked about. Talk to Katie herself about joining the prayer team. We'll walk with you and work with you. Make space to listen every day if this is you or if this isn't you yet. Make space uh, and time alone to listen and with your community to listen. Surround yourself with others working to hear from the Spirit and to speak humbly in public what they hear in the quiet. My point is that we as followers of Jesus cannot afford to close up our ears to the voice of prophecy, whether that's prophecy that's revealed in the scriptures or in prayer, you know, around a table at your missional community or on stage at a gathering on a Sunday night, whatever it might be. What is it that we need to hear? What is it that you need to hear tonight? Do we need to be shaken from our apathy or do we need to hear God's comforting hope? Or do we need to hear both? 